Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Screaming at Kicking podcast. Make sure you stay till the very end because we learned something that we did not expect from our guest and it is pretty cool. Alright, let's go ahead and jump into the episode with Dr. Nick Winkleman and make sure, again, you stay to the end because it's pretty awesome. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're super excited to have you on here. Uh, really, really awesome that you could join us here. Yeah, Tyler Omar, my pleasure. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So before we get started, just a, a quick, let's get a little background for our listeners here. Um, I'm curious, too, just about how the language of coaching became a real focal point in your life and your career, and then just a background on how you got to where you are today. Okay. Okay. How much time do we have here? I'll try to. I'll try to. <laughs> I'll try to give you a canned response. Um, so I'm, I'm a strength conditioning coach by trade. I have been in strength conditioning or athletic performance, as we typically refer to it now, for almost 20 years. And so got all the the degrees in exercise science and whatnot, and I've always had an interest in in physical performance and physical development. And so my, my career is really, uh, call it, I'm on chapter two. So chapter one, I spent a decade. I spent 10 years working for a company called Exos, formerly Athletes Performance, which is basically a, a private high-performance entity whereby I usually tell people their in-season was every professional sports off-season. And now the, the organization is international, services elite military, Google, Intel, as well as all the, the known professional sports. My role there was really twofold. Um, I oversaw our coach education department, which would run week-long courses all around the world at this point. And so very much so I see myself as, as one part coach educator, but the other part was as a S&C coach. And I kind of cut my teeth, as they say, working with elite military, as well as NFL or aspiring NFL athletes. And specifically within that, I would work in what we refer to as our NFL Combine Development Program. And, and I oversaw the speed and kind of movement skill methodology across the organization at our various sites and ran it myself in Phoenix, Arizona. And so for those that are kind of unfamiliar, basically we get the, the best collegiate football players in January. We have them for eight weeks. It's basically an NFL Combine boot camp. And we're trying to get them as big, strong, and powerful, physically and mentally ready for the NFL Combine, as well as their, their first year, ideally if they're drafted in the NFL. And so very much so my, my canvas as a coach was in helping players move better on the field. And so even though initially strength coach, you think of the gym, I very much so focused on linear speed development, agility, expression of power, change of direction, and even on-field movement skills. And so I like to think of myself as a bridge between what we traditionally do as strength conditioning coaches and what a sport requires. But knowing that many people on here are our skill coaches themselves, we know that the complexity of skill requires us to be 
quite effective in our coaching, in our communication, in our ability to take someone from where they are to where they want to be. And so by chance or choice, I'm not sure which, I just fell in love with the world of language, the world of communication, and trying to find better ways to get the ideas out of my head and into the player's body such that they could OTC, they could own the change. And for me at the, at the time, over that 10-year period, which was 2006 to 2016, I found that at least as a strength and conditioning coach, so much of our education was in what to coach, right? The reps, the sets, the exercises, and the drill. But we were so limited in our focus around how to coach it, how to communicate it. How do I get the ideas off the program and into the person? And so that sent me on a journey that now is well over 10 years in the making, where I have studied the intersection between what we say as coaches and what an athlete then focuses on and how that impacts in, in the real moment performance and, and learning. And so that, that still very much so is in the uh, focal point of who I am and what we'll be talking about today. But to bring you up to speed, chapter two, I joined Irish Rugby as the head of athletic performance and science in 2016, and I'm still on board over here. And basically my role is to support and oversee athletic development across our national as well as our four professional teams. And so again, I still have coach ed as well as actual coaching on the ground in, in my blood. And I guess what we'll be talking about today is my recent book that was published last year, just had its first birthday in April, The Language of Coaching. And that book, it really is the, the 10 years in the making of thinking and applying insight around how to optimize our words. And as I say, get to the words that work when it comes to coaching individuals. Awesome. And your your experience in there really shows through because just even early on, it's t you're talking about how, you know, as a coach, you can get an athlete to do something pretty specifically as you're there, like, no, let's let's just fix this right here. And then they can do it in front of you. And it's awesome in practice. And then you take them to a game scenario and you're like, what happened? <laughs> what happened? So the experience of that, like just reading that I was like, yes, this is exactly what I'm looking for, like how to make that happen and stick. Yeah, and Nick, my, my own personal experience reading the book is something I think a lot of soccer coaches like myself struggle with is obviously we have the words in our head and then the words that come out of your mouth and then there's what the player hears. So those three things, sometimes they're not you know on the same wavelength, they're not congruent, and that's one of the biggest um, benefits that I had reading the book is to have to get those three things in line together. It's what what I'm, I have in my head, how I communicate it, like you said, the how instead of the what, because the what is easy. Uh, and then it's what the player hears. Um, so for me, that was one of the biggest eye-opening things uh, about this book. So I really, really enjoyed going well, through well, it. Well, Omar, I just, to, to pick up on your point, you're using two really, really important words. And, and I just want to spend a moment uh, naming them and, and sharing them because I think it'll help people start to, as they're listening, organize their own language, their own communication. I mean, for everyone listening and watching, think of yourself as having a language locker. And that language locker, to kind of use the sport reference, we use language for different purposes. Now, 
One purpose is to explain why we do something, right? Another purpose is to explain what we're going to do. And another purpose is to explain how we're going to do it. So almost imagine all three of those. We need them all. We need the why. We need the what. We need the how. But each of those require its own form of, of language. Think of it as linguistic communication skill. And each of those are a different skill. Your skill to convey why, what, and how. And so let's just emphasize the what and the how. Very often when we're teaching a skill, let's say it's, it's striking a ball, how to, how to kick or pass, whatever it might be, there's, there's two ways that we can think about that. We can think about explaining that from the third person perspective as if we're watching it as a coach does or as an athlete, a player does when they're watching a video, or we can explain it from the first person perspective as the person doing it. And just right now as a coach, I want people to reflect on that because how often are we using language to describe something as if we're talking about it in the third person, as if we're watching it versus offering up language that puts someone in the state of mind as if they're the actual person doing it. And so let's just give, let's just give an example. Now, if you can forgive me, I'm not a soccer coach, but I think one thing that soccer in my world have in common is sprinting, running. So I'm going to use sprinting for a lot of my examples today, and I'll riff off any soccer examples uh, both of you provide. So if we think about sprinting and we say, okay, there's explaining what to do, and then there's explaining how to do it. In the explaining of what to do, that's the third person perspective. That's as if we're looking at this thing together and describing it as you would to describe anything, let's say, to a child, versus the language of, of how is how am I actually going to do this? How am I going to become the skill? How am I going to become the technique that we're observing? So I'm now, Omar, let's say I'm working with you. I might say, hey, today we're going to sprint. Here's a demonstration of a sprint. Look at what needs to happen. That knee needs to go forward. We call that hip flexion. That leg needs to go back. We call that hip extension. And from head to heel, we want you to be nice and straight. Head to heel, strong as steel. Now, even as I'm talking, I would imagine what's going on for people is the idea, a visual of sprinting is starting to populate their mind. And it's almost as if I've taken a flashlight, a spotlight, and I've kind of zoomed it in. I've given you a tour of technique. Oh, that front leg goes forward. That's flexion. The back leg goes back. That's extension. And we want nice straight lines. And maybe even a picture of Usain Bolt starts to populate your mind. But the key thing is, how does that language translate into actually doing it? How does that language translate into actually being able to express that sprint? And the reality is for most of us, it doesn't. And let me give you an anecdote, a footnote, because I think everyone listening or watching will have felt this and seen this. And have you ever had an athlete come up to you and say, coach, I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. I think so many coaches again and again and again have felt that. Even as a new young coach, how many coaches say, I know what good looks like. I just don't know how to get them to do it. And so both as coaches and as players, we find ourselves in this kind of gap between knowing what to do and knowing what we want to see, but not necessarily having as a coach the linguistic power to convey it or as an athlete, the understanding to become it. And that's where we need this second category 
of language, the language of how to do it, or the language of coaching, as I talk about in my book. And so now, Omar, I'm still working with you on your sprinting. I need to get you out of the third person. I need to get you out of thinking about this movement as if you're watching a video. And I need you to become the mover. I need you to become the skill you're trying to express. And so now I might say things to you such as, hey, as you sprint, focus on rapidly pushing the ground away. I want you to explode off the ground. Just allow that word for the listeners, right? Allow the word explode off the ground. You can feel that. The common currency of my words is invested in how that makes you feel. It's not just a visual. Certainly you can visualize it, but you can also feel how that might come to life in your body. Equally, I could say, hey, as you explode off the line, I want you to drive your knee forward as if you're to shatter a pane of glass. Literally with every single stride, punch through an invisible pane of glass in front of you. And the second you imagine punching your knee through a pane of glass, guess what? You become the one hitting the glass. You feel the power required to become that sensation and the movement that produces it. And so I want to pause there. I took a bit of time because it's so critical that both forms of language are important. This technical descriptive language and this kind of coaching applied first person language. We need them both. But let's be brutally honest. It's that second form of communication, learning how to offer language that translates into a focus that gives me a feeling that allows me to become the skill I pursue. That's what we are here to get better at. And that's ultimately what the language of coaching was designed to help the entire movement profession do. Nick, one great example that I uh, took from your book and applied on one of my goalkeepers, we were working on just exploding off the ground, getting up as high as possible into the air and catching the ball in midair. Now, instead of doing the internal focus, you know, put the knee up to this level, back leg goes here, arms stay straight and all that stuff. I used one example in the book, which is jump as if you're getting a rebound from a basketball. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, this goalkeeper played basketball when he was younger for many years. I was like, okay, so this example is relevant. And immediately I saw a difference in the leap. They were jumping up as if there was a rebound to a basketball. It, was just, it just looked more fluid, and again, I'm not articulate enough to, to describe it, but it just looked better. Not just, you know, getting more inches on the vertical jump, it just, the reach was there. So hidden inside of that very simple example, Omar, is, is brilliance, is true brilliance that, that let's just unpack a little bit. And you, and you named a few of the things. Earlier on in our discussion, you said that sometimes it can be difficult when you're coaching, and that you'll say one thing, but either the athlete didn't hear you, they didn't understand you, possibly they misinterpret. And so we, we always have this challenge of translating the words we use to describe something into the words the player will understand such that they extract the same meaning. And so in the case that you're offering here, the goal was to jump as high as you could with good fluency of movement. How do you convey that? And so assuming that the player wasn't doing it the way you wanted, you wanted to offer up some cue, some language that could help them experience or become the change. In this case, the height of the, in this case, the height of the jump 
that you were trying to encourage. And so you recognize that the meaning was to jump high. They understood the meaning, but they couldn't access it physically. And so what you did is you said, hold on now. This person used to be a basketball player. There's a parallel between basketball and goalkeeping in this case and catching the ball at the highest point. And that's getting a rebound, which by its very nature requires you to go above other people. It wasn't just about, hey, jump high. No, no, no. A rebound takes that to another level. It's jumping high above others, which makes more salient. It makes stand out the fact that you need them to get up as high as they can as fast as possible. So there was a parallel. This is the first key thing you did. There was a parallel between the rebound and the skill you were teaching. And so in this case, you used an analogy. You compared something they were familiar with, the rebound, to an aspect of this skill they were less familiar with, catching a ball at the highest point from a goalkeeping perspective. Once you made that connection, they realized the skill solution, the movement solution was already inside of them, but it's like they just hadn't found it yet. So you were rummaging through the junk drawer and you finally found the key you were looking for by way of analogy. But the other key thing you did there is not only did you make sure that the movement to movement comparison captured the essence of what you were teaching, you also used something that the person was familiar with. And this is where the vast majority of coaching language falls down, is that we use words, anecdotes, reference stories, and visuals that the athlete simply has no experience with. It's not a failure of the cue in any principled manner, but it's a failure of the cue to land and make an impact on the person. And so the key reasons, there's two of them, those analogies you offered worked is one, the analogy was relevant to what you were teaching and two, it was familiar to the athlete. That really is the DNA of creating effective comparisons. The DNA of effectively uh, effective analogy use is one, is this thing relevant and two, are they familiar and do they like it? And it sounds like this player liked basketball, making the analogy stick that much more. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So you mentioned there's a lot of research in the book about internal and external focus. Can you explain, just dig in a little bit more about how the external so is getting better results? We've already teed ourselves up to answer this question, right? So earlier we talked about language used to describe what needs to happen. So think of it as technical language and then language used to describe how to actually do this thing and that both are important. When you actually look at that in the research space, they refer to this language as internal language and external language. Now, again, for those listening or watching, I want you to think of a specific skill. Doesn't matter what the skill is, but a specific movement skill that you coach and teach on a daily basis. And so for me, again, I'm going to use the reference of sprinting. So internal language is any coaching language that references body parts, body positions, or muscle action. So things like flex your hip, squeeze your glute, extend your leg, dorsiflex, drive off your big toe, chest up, back flat, stomach tight, so on and so forth. So think of internal language as being technical language, anatomical language, typically descriptive language. Now, based on that as a definition, we can see how internal language makes a whole heck of a lot of sense when I am describing what should happen. 
when I'm describing the features of the technique. And very much so, it's the language I would use from a third person perspective as I'm pointing things out, almost like on an anatomy chart. But then there's this other kind, right? This language of how to do it. And that typically comes from the perspective of an external focus. Now, an external focus relates to drawing one's focus or attention to one's impact on the environment, i.e. push the ground away, or the outcome that interaction with the environment is meant to produce. Cover 10 meters as fast as you can. Beat this person you're racing uh, to your right over the 10 meter line, whatever it might be. Pass the ball to your teammate 10 meters up the field, right? So either it's a clear external outcome or it's the interaction with the environment. So again, talking soccer here, you might reference how you want the touch on the ball, right? If you want under, side, over, whatever it might be, that's external and still it's my impact with the environment. So what we're looking at then with an external focus, think about it. When you're the one doing the moving, right? You are your arms. <laughs> this, is, this is silly, but it's actually accurate. You are your arms, you are your legs, you are the skill, you are the coordination. So I don't need to tell you how to use your body. I just need to give your body a goal. I need to give you a clear direction insofar as how you are meant to interact with this physical environment, the ground, the teammate, an opponent, the ball, the net, the goal, whatever it might be. And so this is where an external focus allows you to coordinate your movement in terms of the outcome you're trying to achieve, right? Push the ground away, explode towards the ceiling, catch the ball at the highest point, catch the ball at the highest point like you're pulling down a rebound, gradually rise off the ground like a jet taking off if I'm coaching speed. And so here now we have internal language describing what to do, external language allowing me to download how to do it, what the experience should be like from the first person. Now you're right to mention, Tyler, that there is a ridiculously large body of literature on this that kicked off in 98. And so we're looking at now, gosh, you know, 23 years of evidence, north of 250 right, peer-reviewed studies, papers on this topic. And there's easily 90% agreement across age, gender, novice to elite, strength, power, speed, agility, individual, team sports, remedial things like balance, the complex things like throwing a baseball and everything in between. And the findings are staggeringly consistent. And that is that when you adopt the appropriate external focus. You not only tend to perform better during practice in the moment, but more importantly, you tend to learn better, which means something about offering an external focus while I am moving allows me to own the change, to absorb the change that the coaching language is trying to stimulate in the first place. So. So the key thing then is simply to recognize that when we talk about internal versus external, internal is used to describe what's gonna happen. You're gonna use it in the team room, you're gonna use it during video analysis, you're gonna use it when you're discussing what happened or what didn't happen. The key thing is, and the word is and, not or, it's and, you wanna add this new piece, which is the language of how to do it. And certainly everyone listening, you're gonna have used external cues. You'll see it in your own coaching. You will have used analogies, 
The question is, are you using them on purpose by choice versus chance? And are you systematically trying to organize your messaging such that you put the what before the how? The key thing is we want the moment before they move to be sacred. And we want to protect that moment for the language that is going to help them generate a focus that allows them to move better, not only in practice, but more importantly, in competition. And that's where in that moment, in that island before they move, we want it to be an external focus or an analogy. People listening might be saying, gosh, a lot of my cueing is just by chance. It just comes to my mind. Or maybe I hear another coach use it. How can I actually generate better language? How can I get to the words that work? Recognizing that even though three goalkeepers, Omar, right, need to work on the same aspect of technique, you might actually need to generate three different cues to actually make the connection so that they can download the meaning that leads to the change. And so you almost need a schema. You need a system. You need a mental app that allows you to do this on the fly. And, and we can get into this, but this is where my external queuing models and my analogy models are exactly designed to do just that, to help you develop what I refer to as a habit of queuing, so that in real time, you identify what needs to change, you describe that, and then you can synthesize quick language that's going to resonate with them, actually make the movement better. And ultimately, again, that's the heartbeat of what the language of coaching is about. You know, Nick, I, I was actually on the phone with my uh, U.S. soccer uh, B license uh, instructor, Gareth Smith, and he actually has your book. So we started talking about it. And it's it's very funny. He mentioned to me that in Canada, a country so competitive in hockey, been competitive for decades, they actually changed the wording across the coaching education system where they say when we don't have the puck, we're hunting, we're not defending. So from the age of 10 years old, we teach the kids, we hunt, we hunt in packs. We're not defending. We're not trying to win back possession. They want to use that specific word because they know the, the image that it creates. And it, that enthusiasm, just it helps create the better movements that they're looking for. Well, 100%. I mean, contrast that with a when we're on defense, we need the three of you to go after the puck together versus we need a hunt. Okay. One is a dissertation. The other one is a soundbite, okay? And the soundbite, you can download so much more meaning and emotional energy from it. Because when we hear the word hunt, we think of packs. And the cool thing is, I might think of lions. You might think of wolves. Someone else might think of, you know, dogs. Whatever it might be, it doesn't matter. We can all translate the way packs hunt to our own mind, but it gets us to the same meaning where a group of individuals are aggressively pursuing a common end, which is going to be beneficial to us and not so beneficial to them in the case of actual hunting. And so in just giving a bit more depth behind the word, it's just Omar when you made the reference to, to the vertical jump and rebounding. When we start to realize the power of our language, and we can start to then identify, hey, here's what we want to change, either tactically, in the example you just gave, or individually from a skill expression. Whether I'm trying to coordinate a bunch of individuals or a bunch of joints, I'm still trying to get a bunch of disparate parts to work together. And so this is where our external cues and our analogies work for both technical and tactical language generation. Identify the problem, and then identify language that simply conveys 
the solution to that problem in a highly emotional, visual manner that in one, two, two to three words is going to get everybody to coordinate together or get the body to coordinate together. But this is a skill. People need to realize this. What we are talking about here is a skill. Just because one day you came up with a very good tactical cue for this aspect of your defensive formation does not mean that every single time you have a tactical problem or a technical problem to solve, you'll be able to do that. And so this is where I encourage people to start to elevate their awareness and arm themselves with the actual machinery of meaning making in the way they generate coaching language. Yeah, I mean, w one thing, especially yeah, last night, we had a game last night, you know, against the California strikers, and we were doing some finishing towards the end of the warm-up, and, you know, it, I was just trying to find the right words to use. Instead of going for power, I wanted them to aim for the bottom corners, but I didn't, I didn't want to say that, so I just, just guide it. It's a pass. Just guide it into that bottom corner. That's all it needs. That's a goalkeeper's worst nightmare. Um, so I just, since reading your book, I'm constantly trying to find myself, like you said, the best of both worlds, internal and external. But the external is, is something that I never really thought of before. Um, so, so Omar, let's not lose that. So talk, talk to me why you, how did you come to the word guide? Guide for me suggests that I might even have longer contact with the ball. I'm trying to be more precise with the ball. I'm trying to have greater control. Walk me through why you use the word guide. Um, do you know what? That's a great question. I use the word guide because I wanted to take the venom out of the, the power. I think they were going with too much power. And as a goalkeeper, as a former goalkeeper, I want you to hit it with power because that means the accuracy will go down. So when I use guide, I say just it's a gentle tap. It's a gentle inside of the foot. Just guide it where you want it to go. So just take the venom out. Take the power out. You don't need it. To beat the goalkeeper, you just need to guide it into that bottom corner, especially from 10, 15 yards out. Um, I don't know if that's a good enough reason. No, no, but but here's so again, first of all, you used a beautiful analogy as you teed that up. You wanted to take the venom out of the power. Like just even you using that, what you said is, I want to take the sting out of the power, I want to take the negativity out of power when power is taken to the extreme. And when power is taken to the extreme, especially in high skill, high accuracy sport, that's when chaos is introduced to the contact and therefore increased variability, which means it doesn't go where I want it to go. Conversely then, when we think about guide, you almost imagine you're guiding your grandmother through a doorway. You'd put the hand possibly on their back or allow them to hold onto your arm and you're keeping contact for longer to ensure that they get where we'd like them to go safely. And what I would imagine is what that's going to do is it's going to be a longer contact with the ball. It's going to be more finish and follow through in the direction I want to go. But the cool thing is, right, that then parlays into the biomechanics needed to achieve it. So when you use the word guide, it's like a Trojan horse. You're hiding all of this technical jargon, all this technical baggage inside of a simple accessible word that acts like Simon says, right? Simon says, touch your nose. Simon says, touch your toes, right? In this case, they don't have to think about the mechanics. They just think about the end and act as if. I wanna put one final emphasis on this. Children come into this world pre-verbal. They cannot speak, but they're massively suited to mirror mom and dad within a matter of seconds. 
A baby can smile in response to mom or dad smiling or parents smiling at them. Equally, as they get older, well before they can speak, they can act like mom, dad, right, dog or doctor, and they can pretend as if. We don't lose this ability as adults. And so it's the way that the mind can massively, massively reduce complexity and information overload. There's a reason we say a picture is worth a thousand words. And the cool thing is I don't need to give you a thousand words to put a picture in your mind. And so with one simple word, guide, you take the venom out of the power and it allows me to download and act as if all the reference points of guiding I have in my life, which all parlay into the controlled biomechanics you're encouraging. Now we're riffing on this in far more detail than you ever would need to in front of a player, but I just wanna highlight in your intuition, Omar, in your intuition, there is DNA, there is brilliance, and other coaches can avail of that systematically with everything they say. I really appreciate that. Uh, means a lot uh, coming from you. Again, I, I just uh, I, I don't think I would have had paid as much attention to it without reading your book. So again, that's why you're here. That's why we're here. We're two young coaches trying to to learn and get better. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. Uh, so the next question we had, just I wanted to briefly touch on um, this constant debate between uh, block practice and random practice. So just repeating the same technique over and over. So uh, just creating that muscle memory versus putting the decision making into it. And then the, the players have to improvise on the skill that they need to do under pressure. Uh, so can you walk us through what's the healthy balance there? Yeah. So. I had a very nice chat with uh, Raymond Verheim. So for those in the soccer football community, I would imagine they would be quite familiar with him. And we were, we were talking through this in a similar discussion. And so the first thing we have to recognize to answer that question, let's work back from the pitch. And so now I have a player on the pitch and we can imagine any scenario, whether it's on the, the attacking or the defensive side of the ball. And three things need to happen. One, I need to identify or recognize is oftentimes the word. I need to recognize what's happening in front of me. Once I recognize, okay, then I need to decide what I'm going to do. And then the third piece is then I need to act. I need to express a skill. So it's recognize, decide, RDA. Now, when it comes to skill development, when it comes to skill development, we talk about this idea of representative design. And when we say things like representative design, it's a very fancy way to say, does practice represent competition? And so for practice to represent competition, we would say that we always need those three ingredients. Am I having the opportunity to recognize accurate pictures? to then make accurate decisions against those pictures, and then finally act in accordance with that decision. With the goal being recognize deciding and acting as fast as I can in pursuit of the right end, the right acted out decision. So now we're talking about this whole idea of skill development versus the context with which that skill is expressed. If you are horrible, at passing the ball, okay? If the only time you get to practice passing the ball is under the contextual pressure of recognize, decide, act, recognize, decide, act, 
Arguably, you're not going to get enough repetitions on the ball to make meaningful change, but also you are so distracted and disrupted by the recognize and decide side of things that you're not able to put full, meaningful, skill-developing attention to the actual action, the actual skill itself. The beauty is it doesn't have to be one or the other. Good coaches will have opportunities for skill development as well as skill in context. And skill in context, as you might imagine, becomes more and more important the more elite the player becomes, assuming more and more of their individual actions, their individual skills are becoming more and more automatic and at the level we want. At the end of the day, at elite international and national level competition, it usually comes down to speed of recognition and decision because everyone's skills, if we tested them in isolation, are where they need to be. Now, back to your question. Now that we've created that frame, what we're now discussing is, okay, let's say we've identified that someone needs to improve their skill. And maybe the skill is passing, maybe the skill is kicking on goal, whatever it is, pick your poison. The question is, what's the best way in terms of design? We're not talking about language anymore. We're talking about how do we design a physical environment? What's the best way to do that to optimize skill learning? The first thing I will say is this, individuals are individuals. So no one size is gonna fit all, but there are generalities. There are averages that can inform best practice as a first attempt. And that's what we're talking about here in terms of contextual interference, right? And so the world of contextual interference, Omar, as you bring up, basically asks the question, is it better to practice something in, in blocks where I do the same skill over and over again, where I take the same shot from the same spot 50 times? Or is it better to use serial order where, okay, I'm gonna do 10 shots from this part of the pitch, then 10 shots from this part of the middle part of the pitch, and then 10 shots from the right? Or is it best to use random practice where, hey, out of my 30 to 50 shots, I'm gonna shoot, I'm gonna kick the ball from a different part of the pitch every single time. Now, the argument for what that third category is referred to as random, the argument for that is aligned to representative design in that do you ever take the same shot from the same spot two times in a row? And the answer is very simply no. It would be like someone who's a baseball player only taking fastballs, right, in training, yet we know that they're gonna randomly face a fastball, a curve, a changeup, so on and so forth. So we have this conundrum. Now, the evidence, the evidence, gosh, first paper probably published in the early 70s, showed that when you looked at practice, they've done basketball, baseball, certainly they've done soccer, when you do block practice, you tend to have higher accuracy in practice. But then when you put someone in a more realistic environment, those that practiced under random conditions, even though their accuracy might have been less in practice, result in better learning and adaptability and expression when it's learning and retention in a representative environment. Which basically means when you practice in a blocked way, guess what you get better at? block practice. And when you practice in a random way, you get better at random practice. And because random tends to be more representative of real life, you tend to look better in real life. And so that then has led everyone to say, oh, okay, random's better than blocked. 
But now let's say, you know, Omar, you're working with a new kid, fresh off the block, who's just learning some of these things for the first time. Is that really the best way to go with them? Where every single shot is from a different part of, of the field? Well, Jared Porter asked this very question. He said, maybe it actually makes sense that it's not so much blocked versus random, but the level of challenge, right? His question is, what if blocked was challenging? If you've never done something before, just because you do 10 reps in a row doesn't mean instantaneously you're an expert at it. And so what he did is he said, what if I take one group, give them blocked only, another group, give them random only, which has been the classic research, and then another group does first third is blocked, second third is serial, last third is random. And guess what? The group that used the progressive approach from block to serial random outperformed the random only group and the random only group outperformed the blocked. And so what this says is it's more to do with the level of challenge, which then relates to the way we pay attention. The more challenging something is, the more we deploy attention and attention is the currency of learning. You only learn from the things you pay attention to. So my strategic use of block, serial, and random practice should be directly related to the challenge and the appropriateness of the challenge based on the individual and their familiarity with the skill. And so for me, within a training session and across training sessions, I would think of the percent distribution going something like this. Earlier on in the preseason, I would do more blocked and serial, but I'd always have some random work involved in the session. As I moved to the end of the preseason towards in-season, blocked would become less and less and less. Maybe it just becomes an isolated skill block, literally by name, and more of the work becomes random and contextualized. The key thing I'm trying to convey here is there is no one size that fits all. Ultimately, it's about challenging them at the threshold of their skill, because that's the interface of flow. That's the interface of development. And that's the interface that draws attention into the skill, which is the requirement to open the door for learning and absorption. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I mean, we with the soccer community, we always have discussions over what level of success do we want at practice? Because obviously, if the, if the players are failing too much, then frustration kicks in and they're not learning. But if they don't fail enough, then obviously, then the session is too easy, right? 100%. No, you, you've nailed it. You've nailed it. Um, and so, uh, Nick, there was one page that made Tyler and I really self-conscious and we have so many questions. Okay. There's, there's a, a pie graph that has your coaching cues and it divides it up into a pie chart that says 50% of your coaching relies on analogies, 35% on external cues, 5% internal cues and 10% other. Now we have we don't even know where to start with that. First of all, uh, were you surprised when you saw those results? Was that like a distribution that you were aiming for? Uh, walk us through that. That was a self analysis, Omar. That that's actually just that's a self analysis of of my own coaching. Now, I've I've videoed and reviewed my coaching enough over the years to to hold on those as pretty accurate numbers. The the key thing with that is just it starts out as a self analysis. The key thing for me is you're looking at the moment before they move. So think of this. This is the last thing you say before they break out into a drill or they break out into a set of exercise, whatever it might be. 
and you're specifically interrogating the language you use in those moments around it, how much of it's analogy, how much of it's external, how much of it's internal, how much how much of it is more just like generally motivational or encouraging. That's typically what we mean by by other. And so, you know, for me, it didn't start that way. <laughs> when I first started coaching, it probably would have been you know 80% internal and 20% external with the odd analogy, cross your fingers by complete chance, okay? So th this is where I, I say it again and again and again, and the chapter you're referring to is, is chapter seven, and, and the chapter literally is the roadmap. It's about how do we develop a habit of cueing. It starts with awareness, it starts with understanding where you're at, and then systematically applying solutions, at first off the field, and then inevitably on the field, until in the same way you want the skills to become automatic with the players, you want these communication strategies, these communication skills to become automatic in you. The challenge is, this is not something you can buy. You can buy the book, but it's not necessarily gonna mean that you can go out and do this. It takes effort. The reality is so much of our industries across movement professions, whether you're sport coach, strength coach, physio, therapist, whatever it might be, is we're, we're given the blueprint, the program of what to do, but we are left to our own devices to figure out how to do it, how to communicate it. And so you imagine how much time you spend accumulating the what and how little time you purposely focus on developing the how. And once you recognize the chasm, the difference in distribution of where you focus your time developing as a coach, you realize, well, I've got some work to do. But for me, that is an amazing opportunity because it aligns to why we all do this. You have a huge gap that if targeted is gonna make significant differences to the relationship, the rapport, and the impact you can make on your players. And it focuses at the heartbeat of what we love doing. And that's owning the space between ourselves and the people we support. That's what the book is about, but it's not an overnight turnkey type solution. You're gonna have to put in the time even though what you're putting your time into principally is very simple. It just takes your attention and focus just as your athletes take attention and focus to learn what you're teaching them. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much, Dr. Winkleman. And we want to be very specific about your time. We don't want to take up your whole day or anything. Uh, we have one question that's a little different. We just want to hear a little bit about you. So can you share one thing that's outside of your field of study that excites you right now? It could be anything. Oh, well, I'll give you two things. One, a lot of people don't know, I, I'm an amateur DJ. So for me, music kind of runs through me. I literally have a, a full DJ set on the other side of this screen. So that's one thing that allows me to go pure creative, nonverbal, and awesome. just jam out, you know, running, running, running quite literally to the beat of my own drum. And the other thing is I'm a massive, massive reader of kind of Zen philosophy. So for me, trying to get back just the core philosophies of, of what it means to live the good life. That is perfect. That is so cool. Maybe we can get a track or something to play as the intro on this episode or something. That would be, <laughs> that'd be really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or some uh, pregame uh, hype music yeah. in, the, in the locker room. Yeah. I, yeah. I would never I'm say no to that. Class. I'm on sound, Mover, M-O-V-E-R-E, on SoundCloud. You'll find uh, plenty of mixes there to get people hyped up. 
Awesome. We'll definitely you... include we'll, that yeah. in the links. Um, <laughs> I thought it was interesting too, the DJing deliberate practice, I think it was section yeah. in the, in the book. I was like, man, I haven't seen anything like that. So I, I see where that's coming from now. And, and that's really, down. really cool. Absolutely. Dr. Winkleman, this has been an absolute masterclass in language of coaching, philosophy of learning, science behind learning. I know I've gotten so much out of it. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, Nick, uh, hopefully we haven't embarrassed ourselves too much. Hopefully you'll come back again <laughs> at some not, point <laughs> in the future. We'd love, we'd love to have you back on. There's just so much content in there that we left out uh just for the purpose of for of respecting your time uh but yeah could you please tell us what's the best way to pe for people to find you and find your content sure so the the language of coaching is available on on amazon and all the various sites um, i have quite a bit of free content at the language at nick winkleman will get you the fresh voice on instagram and, and twitter and the odd clubhouse room and uh, info at the language of coaching.com if you want to reach out perfect and also the sorry the the platform for the music what was it again oh yeah that's soundcloud you soundcloud or mixcloud and the, the handle is under mover which is latin for movement so m-o-v-e-r-e I like it. That is awesome. Yeah, the players are kind of sick of my pregame music, so I might <laughs> spice it up a bit. That's all I'm going to say. Well, if they like house music, Omar, then they're oh, going to get out of it. <laughs> perfect. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Nick, thank you so much, and, and we hope to have future conversations with you uh, as well. Uh, but, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of this. Please get the book, guys. Get the book. And, uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I trust you enjoyed it. Now we are going to let Air take it from here with a track from his SoundCloud. That's M-O-V-E-R-E on SoundCloud. Go check it out. M-O-V-E-R-E. -E. You're going to love it.